Hi, and welcome to this episode of the Love Monday podcast. I'm glad you're joining me again today. If you haven't subscribed to this and if you haven't shared it with somebody else, please do that. It really helps me out, and I think it helps out our cause, which is to help people love Monday just like Friday, but for a different reason. Today I want to talk about, well, I'll introduce the topic by saying I'm writing another book. I've written a book called A Passion for Monday. I've actually got some outlines for a couple of other books too, but I'm writing one right now that may never see the light of day. I haven't decided yet. I'm writing it for myself, and if at the end of it, it seems like it might help others, then I'll put it out there. And I think it might help primarily men, but it could help others as well. And I think by helping men, it will also help women. But I'm not sure if my perspective is going to help women so much, which made me think of something else. So anyway, this book is all about relationships. Now, if you know me, that might seem ironic, even comical. I am a motivational speaker. I'm twice divorced, and I don't live in a van down by the river like Matt Foley. Though, you know, with those four-wheel drive, tricked-out sprinter vans, I kind of wish I did live in a van down by the river because all of a sudden it's become kind of cool. But I don't. So like I said, for a guy like me to write a book on relationships may be at least ironic. Or is it? Who better to know what not to do than a two-time loser at marriage, than someone who spent 30 years of his adult life in married relationships and is no longer in one, to know what not to do in a relationship. Maybe I know more than I think. It would be ironic except for I've spent the last three years at least owning my part in those failures and, and failing some more and learning some more and failing some more and learning some more. Finally, Last summer, I had another failed relationship, and after that, I just sort of tapped the mat and said, I can't do this anymore. So I asked a professional, my therapist, Dr. Jacqueline Hyde, not even kidding, that's her real name. I once asked her if her middle name was Mr. Dr. Jacqueline, Mr. Hyde, get it? She told me nobody had ever made that joke before, and I said, you gotta be kidding. Who would leave that joke on the table? Anyway, she gave me some very good professional advice. To make a long story short, I've been studying what I've been doing wrong and getting lots of opinions and professional help and reading a lot of articles and getting a lot of coaching on what I've been doing wrong. And so I'm putting that together in a book to maybe help, well, really to help myself. The book is for me. And if it's going to help other people, then I'll put it out there, like I said. But one of the main takeaways from all of my study for this... <clears throat> is that I have never taken the time to understand my partners, to understand women in general. And when I don't understand someone, I can't appreciate them. When I fail to appreciate someone, I don't see them as a person. And it's not about men and women, it's really about seeing someone, just really seeing them. I had no clue I haven't been seeing women and others as individuals. I mean, for all of their greatness they bring. And I don't like to admit this, but it was pointed out to me and I had to own it. And it wasn't just women, it was everybody. I was not understanding a lot of people, men included, for the greatness they bring. When I fail to appreciate someone, I don't see them as a person. And I hate to admit that, but it's true. So I'm writing myself a book on how to navigate relationships with partners. But that's just a segue into today's topic for this 
podcast, which is related, but more workplace related than relationship related. March is International Women's Month. And as much as I've seen it mentioned, it's probably not enough. Now, because I'm a white male, I hesitate to even bring this this up, this subject up, because I don't understand the plight of discriminated classes. I can't. I never can. All I can do is try to learn as much as I can from those who really know how it feels. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm fortunate to have some female friends who, for some reason, feel safe talking to me about this stuff. I'm also fortunate to have two daughters who have been inordinately patient with me as a dad. I can be an idiot and they just keep on loving me and giving me the benefit of the doubt. So about a year ago, one of my daughters mentioned the book Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez and then suggested I read it, which I did. And I have to say, it really changed my life. So in today's episode, we're discussing the situation with women in the world and women in the world of work. Again, I can't stress this enough. I can't hope to understand how it's been for the women in my life in those relationships and all the rest of the women in the world in all of the things they face. But I also realize that men need to start talking about this stuff or it will never change. If we only rely on women to try and raise the battle cry for this stuff, nothing's ever going to change. Men need to start seeing it and start doing something differently. Men need to do the work. Men need to understand. Men need to partner with women in the workplace. Men need to start seeing women not as women, but as equals in every way. It's not about appreciating women as women. It's about appreciating women as people. That's what I'm talking about today. And when we don't do that, anybody, women or or any other discriminated class of people, when we don't see them as people, we see them as functions. We see them only as what they can do for us, and then the exploitation just goes unchecked. So I'm going to start with data today. We're going to use data because data matters, and data tells compelling stories. And and I could could offer all kinds of anecdotal stories in my experience, but that's not going to tell what data will tell. And so I'm going to use two sources of data for what we're talking about today. First, the book I already mentioned, Invisible Women by Caroline Perez, and a report called Women in the Workplace, which is a joint study between McKinsey and Company and the LeanIn and LeanIn.org. Now, this stuff is really compelling data. And though I'm nobody famous, I have a voice and I'm male and men need to start to lend a voice to feminism. Men need to be feminists. If we want to change this, that's what it's going to take. So I want to start with with a concept called the default male. If you haven't heard of this, it's pretty interesting and eye-opening and kind of depressing in some ways. The concept of the default male refers to the idea that male is often assumed to be the default or normative gender in many areas of society, including language, media, and culture. And this assumption can have the effect of marginalizing or excluding non-male perspectives and experiences. Most everything we do, be it crash testing cars, making tools, snow removal, pharmaceutical testing, all that stuff is based on this concept of the default male. We do it all based on this average-sized man. And what's worse, it's really the white male. So we're, we're not even taking into effect other races and other classes that we need to be taking into account. But today we're just going to do the default male. We're going to talk about the default male so that we're marginalizing just, you know, 
half of the population as opposed to more than half of the population. I can only take this a bite at a time. So I want to I share some of the things from these two sources, Invisible Women and Women in the Workplace. So there is a very interesting portion in this book, Invisible Women, that I want to talk about. It's called, Can Snow Clearing Be Sexist? Clearing Snow. Can that be sexist? So I'm going to read from the book because this is this really, this tells it better than I could. It's very well written. It all started with a joke. It was 2011 and officials in the town of Karlskoga, Sweden were being hit with a gender equality initiative that meant they had to reevaluate all their policies through a gendered lens. As one after another of their policies were subjected to this harsh glare, one unfortunate official laughed that at least snow clearing was something the gender people, in quotes, would keep their noses out of. Unfortunately for him, his comment got the gender people thinking, is snow clearing sexist? At the time, in line with most administrations, snow clearing in Karlskoga, Sweden, began with the major traffic arteries and ended with pedestrian walkways and bicycle paths. But this was affecting men and women differently because men and women travel differently. We lack consistent sex disaggregated data from every country, but the data we do have makes it clear that women are invariably more likely than men to walk and take public transport. In France, two-thirds of public transport passengers are women. In Philadelphia and Chicago, in the U.S., the figure is 64% and 62% respectively. Meanwhile, men around the world are more likely to drive, and if a household owns a car, it is the men who dominate access to it, even in the feminist utopia that is Sweden. And the differences don't stop at the mode of transport. It's also about why men and women are traveling. Men are most likely to have a fairly simple travel pattern, a twice-daily commute in and out of town. But women's travel patterns tend to be more complicated. Women do 75% of the world's unpaid care work, and this affects their travel needs. A typical female travel pattern involves, for example, dropping children off at school before going to work, taking an elderly relative to the doctor, and doing your grocery shopping on the way home. This is called trip chaining, a travel pattern of several small interconnected trips that has been observed in women around the world. The disparity in male-female trip chaining is found across Europe, where women in dual worker families are twice as likely as men to pick up and drop off children at school during their commute. It is most pronounced in households with young children. A working woman with a child under the age of five will increase her trip chaining by 54%. A working man in the same position will only increase his by 19%. What all these differences meant back in Karlskoga was that the apparent gender-neutral snow-clearing schedule was in fact not gender-neutral at all. So the town councilors switched the order of snow-clearing to prioritize pedestrians and public transport users. After all, they reasoned, it wouldn't cost any more money and driving a car through three inches of snow is easier than pushing a buggy or a wheelchair or a bike through three inches of snow. What they didn't realize was that it would actually end up saving them money. Since 1985, Northern Sweden has been collecting data on hospital admissions for injuries. Their databases are dominated by pedestrians who are injured three times more often than motorists in slippery or icy conditions and account for half of the hospital time of all traffic-related injuries. And the majority of these pedestrians are women. A study of pedestrian injuries in, Swedish, in the Swedish city of Umeå 
found that 79% occurred during the winter months and that women made up 69% of those who had been injured in single-person accidents. That is, those which didn't involve anyone else. Two-thirds of injured pedestrians had slipped and fallen on icy or snowy surfaces, and 48% had moderate to serious injuries, with fractures and dislocations being the most common. Women's injuries also tended to be more severe. A five-year study in Skåne County, also in Sweden, uncovered the same trends and found that the injuries cost money in healthcare and lost productivity. The estimated cost of all these pedestrian falls during just a single winter season was 36 million kronor, around 3.2 million pounds. This was, I don't have that in dollars. It's likely to be a conservative estimate. Many injured pedestrians will visit hospitals that are not contributing to the National Traffic Accident Register. Some will visit doctors and some will simply stay at home. As a result, both the health care and productivity costs are likely to be higher. But even with this conservative estimate, the cost of pedestrian accidents in icy conditions was about twice the cost of winter road maintenance. In Solna, near Stockholm, it was three times the cost and some studies reveal it's even higher. Whatever the exact disparity, it is clear that preventing injuries by prioritizing pedestrians in the snow clearing schedule makes economic sense. So the answer to the question, can snow clearing be sexist? It is absolutely sexist. And Sweden figured it out. And they also started saving money socially because of fewer injuries when they prioritize this. It made economic sense to address this snow clearing being sexist. Interesting, globally, 75% of unpaid labor is done by women who spend between three and six hours per day on it compared to men's average of 30 minutes to two hours. Interesting information. Snow clearing can be sexist. There's another concept I want to talk about from this book, Invisible Women. Again, I'm going to read from the book because it read from the text of the book because it is so enlightening in how it tells the story. This is called the myth of meritocracy. For most of the 20th century, there were no female musicians in the New York Philharmonic Orchestra. There were a couple of blips in the 1950s and 60s when a woman or two was hired, but those aside, the proportion of women sat stubbornly at zero. But then all of a sudden, something changed from the 1970s onward. The numbers of female players started to go up and up. Turnover in orchestras is extremely low. The composition of an orchestra is fairly static at around 100 players. And when they're hired, it's often for life. It's rare that a musician is fired. So there was something remarkable going on when the proportion of women in this orchestra grew from a statistical 0% to 10% in a decade. That something was blind auditions. Instituted in the early 1970s following a lawsuit, blind auditions are what they sound like. The hiring committee can't see who is playing in the audition because there is a screen between them and the player. The screens had an immediate impact. By the early 1980s, women began to make up 50% of the share of new hires. Today, the proportion of female musicians in the New York Philharmonic stands at over 45%. The simple step of installing a screen turned the audition process of the New York Philharmonic into a meritocracy. But in this, it is an outlier. For the vast majority of hiring decisions around the world, meritocracy is an insidious myth. 
It is a myth that provides cover to institutional white male bias. And dishearteningly, it is a myth that proves remarkably resistant to all evidence going back decades, and it shows up as the fantasy it most certainly is. If we want to kill this myth, we're clearly going to have to do more than just data collection. The fact that meritocracy is a myth is not a popular one. Around the industrialized world, people believe that not only is meritocracy the way things should work, it's the way things do work. Despite evidence suggesting that, if anything, the U.S. is less meritocratic than other industrialized countries. Americans in particular hold on to meritocracy as an article of faith. And employment promotion strategies over the past decades have increasingly been designed as if meritocracy is a reality. A survey of U.S. firms found that 95% used performance evaluations in 2002, compared to only 45% in 1971. And 90% had a merit-based pay plan in place. The problem is there's little evidence that these approaches actually work. In fact, there is strong evidence that they don't. An analysis of 248 performance reviews collected from a variety of U.S.-based tech companies found that women receive negative personality criticism that men simply don't. Women are told to watch their tone, to step back. They're called bossy, abrasive, strident, aggressive, emotional, and irrational. Out of all these words, only aggressive appeared in men's reviews at all, twice with an exhortation to be more of it. More damningly, several studies of performance-related bonuses on salary increases have found that white men are regarded at a higher rate than equally performing women and ethnic minorities. With one study, a financial corporation uncovering a 25% difference in performance-based bonuses between women and men in the same job. According to a 2016 survey, the number one concern of tech startup founders was hiring good people, while having a diverse workforce ranked seventh on the list of 10 business priorities. One in four founders said they weren't interested in diversity or work-life balance at all, which taken together points to a belief that if you want to find the best people, addressing structural bias is unnecessary. More than 40% of women leave tech companies after 10 years compared to 17% of men. A feature in the Los Angeles Times similarly found that women left because they were repeatedly passed up for promotion and their projects dismissed. Does this sound like meritocracy? Or does it sound like institutionalized bias? 2022 was the eighth year of the Women in the Workplace report conducted by McKinsey and Company in partnership with leanin.org. And the effort is the largest study of women in corporate America. And they've been doing it for eight years. This year, they collected information from 333 participating organizations employing more than 12 million people, surveyed more than 40,000 employees, and conducted interviews with women of diverse identities, including women of color, LGBTQ plus women, and women with disabilities, to get more of an intersectional look at biases and barriers. And one of the concepts it talks about in this report is called the great breakup. Now, we've heard of the, the great resignation and all of these other great things. Well, this one's called the great breakup because women are demanding more from work and they're leaving their companies in unprecedented, unprecedented numbers to get it. So some of the key findings of this report that McKinsey and leanin.org did 
I want to just share some of them, but here are six of them. Number one, women are still dramatically underrepresented in leadership. Only one in four C-suite executives is a woman, and only one in 20 is a woman of color. They also talk about a concept called the broken rung, which is the first rung in the corporate ladder is broken. And it's still holding women back. For every 100 men promoted from entry level to manager, only 87 women are promoted. Number three, now women leaders are leaving their companies at higher rates than ever before. To put the scale of the problem in perspective, for every woman at the director level who gets promoted, two women directors are choosing to leave their company. Number four, among employees who switched jobs in the past two years, 48% of women leaders say they did so because they wanted more opportunity to advance. Number five, 37% of women leaders have had a coworker get credit for their idea compared to 27% of men leaders. And number six, Women leaders are two times as likely as men leaders to be taken for someone more junior. What's it all mean and why am I sharing this? Because I really believe that everyone can love Monday just like Friday, but for a different reason. But it's way harder for some to love Monday just like Friday than it is for others. It's considerably harder for a woman to get to a place where she can love Monday than it is for me, a white male. I'm in a privileged class. It will always be easier for me, and I don't want it to be that way anymore. Unless we start seeing women as people, as equals, as full 50-50 partners in the endeavors we pursue every day, as equal members of the team, it will always be easier for a guy like me and harder for women. Men need to start seeing this, and men need to start talking about it. So how do we make this better? We all need to read more. We all need to be more informed. But men need to read. Men need to listen. Men need to stop protecting their territory. Men need to stand on their own merit the same way women try to stand on their own merit. So here are your assignments from this week's episode. Sounds like I'm conducting a class. But these are the assignments I would give you if you, want to, if you choose to accept them. For everyone, men and women, read the book Invisible Women. I'll put a link in the show notes where you can order that. It is out on Audible. It's out on Amazon. It's in bookstores. It's called Invisible Women by Caroline Criada Perez. I also want you to check out the McKinseyLeanIn.org report called Women in the Workplace. It's been out. They've been doing it for eight years. They've got it through 2022, and you can, if you go to leanin.org or if you go to McKinsey and Company's website, just Google Women in the Workplace, McKinsey, and you'll find it, and you can see, you can get access to all eight years of the report and see the, the little progress that has been made. But I want you to read this stuff and read other articles and get informed and start discussions in the workplace. And if you're a man, if you have a women's inclusion resource group at your company, are men attending it? Are senior leaders, senior male leaders attending your women's inclusion employee resource group? In most of the companies I've been associated with, they are not. If you even have that resource group, it's largely attended by women. No organization that pays lip service to issues that affect women can be believed when they say they support women if they're just paying lip service to it. No matter how many social posts about International Women's Month they post, no company, no organization can be believed if they're only paying lip service. And if, if men and senior leaders and leaders in general aren't attending things like a women's inclusion network in the workplace, 
we're not doing what we should be doing. We're not listening. We're not seeing women as people. I saw a statistic, and it kind of goes in conflict with the one I quoted earlier from the study, but I saw this, and I don't remember where it was. It was out on LinkedIn. I don't remember all of the details, but it was something to the effect that in the U.S., and I think that earlier statistic where it said one in four C-suite people are women, I think this was in the U.S. that we have finally reached 10% of C-suite positions that are filled by women, and we were celebrating that in this post. And, and that could be the case, um, that because I, I would think that in the U.S. we have fewer women represented at high levels than we do in a lot of other countries of the world. But why would we celebrate getting to 10%? <laughs> I mean, if we were celebrating that back in 1975, maybe I'd understand. But this is no reason for celebration in 2023. It's a reason for reflection on the fact that we're missing the mark by at least 40%. If organizations don't have 50% of their leaders as women at all levels, they're only paying lip service to their commitment to women. If organizations are not eliminating the myth of meritocracy, they're not committed to women in the workplace. If, they're if they have unfriendly parental leave policies, those organizations are not committed to women. If women are not supported in their, project, in their projects in equal proportion to men, they're not committed to women. If your organization is not committed to women, what are you going to do about it? We want everyone to love Monday just like Friday, but for a different reason. So what are you going to do about it if your organization isn't committed to women? Are you going to start to raise your voice? Are you going to start to make your opinion known? How long are you going to be silent? How long are you going to fail to support women in the workplace? And honestly, how long are you going to choose to work at a place like that? This wasn't really a happy, super positive episode, but I wanted to bring these concepts to the forefront. I have learned a lot in the past, really the past year, as I've studied more of these situations. I've been in, I've been, I sat around a table with a bunch of women last summer at a party where one of them asked me to talk about this book because they'd heard I'd, I'd read it. And, and I was the only one. I kind of felt like the only feminist at the table, but that's unfair because women are so used to not being heard, to not being listened to, that I wasn't surprised. I was just glad I'd been able to read the book and could share some of these things with them. Now, I'm sure some or maybe all of them went and read the book after that, but that's what we need to do. So I'm going to put links in the show notes to all my resources today, and I hope you'll get informed about women in the workplace. We need to see women and all other minority classes, and women are not a minority, but we treat them like they are. But all minority classes and women, we need to see them as people and equal partners in the, in the endeavors we pursue every day. That's it for today. I hope you like this episode. Next week, I've got my first ever guest on this podcast. So watch out for that. I'm going to start having guests because I want some other perspectives on how we can love Monday just like Friday, but for a different reason. Subscribe. Check out my book, A Passion for Monday. It's on Amazon.com. Link in the show notes. Check out my website, lovemondaylikefriday.com. Lots of free resources, some paid courses you can take out there. I want to help you love Monday just like Friday, but for a different reason. I'll talk to you soon.